Welcome back, y'all. Glennon's Green here. And I'm Daniel Biss. And we're your co-hosts of Ill-Informed. A podcast about Illinois government and politics and what we can do to make it better. Yes. I think we've done a lot of that. But we're doing more today. So we've discussed quite a bit on this podcast. Would you agree? I would agree. We have the minimum wage, a clean energy bill, corruption, lobbyists, partisanship, the budget, Mike Madigan. And a thread that runs through all of these topics is the nebulous nature of how things, and I mean really important things that end up affecting our lives and life chances, get done. In other words, we don't know how the heck things work or why they work that way unless we're privileged enough to have a peek behind the curtain. Which is what we're doing for y'all. I don't know why I just whispered that, but it just felt much more dramatic. Okay, yeah, you're right. We'll go with that. No one else gets to hear. (laughs) But that's not really cool because how often do you get a chance to have someone like Daniel Biss ready and willing to blow the whistle, spilling all the tea for the good of the people? We appreciate you. But, But how likely will it be for all the folks who are affected by the decisions coming out of Springfield to access the work of organizations like State Matters or even this podcast? Right. Not everybody listens to podcasts. So where is the transparency and how do we really successfully hold folks accountable without transparency and understanding? That is what we're talking about today, folks. Yes, we are. And, and you know, I think ultimately the question that I keep coming back to is what is transparency? What do we mean when we say that? Because it feels like every time you see a candidate for political office, they've got a flyer that says they're going to make things more transparent on that flyer. Then they get elected, and then four years later, the next person comes along and runs against them saying, you weren't transparent enough, I'm going to make it more transparent. And people, you know, they pass bills allegedly to make things more transparent. Yeah. But it's just still very, very hard for most people to get a sense of what's really going on on the inside, which is why that political talking point of transparency seems to be effective in an election. And so I guess my question is, what is it really? Is it just a fake political talking point? Is it a thing that we could achieve by changing one or two things? Is it a systemic cultural transformation that's required? What, what, What do we mean for real when we say transparency and what would have to change for us to get from here to there? So let's start with the here, where we are now. When I think of government transparency, the first thing I think about is FOIA, or the Freedom of Information Act, which allows us to get access to state data or documents that the public might not otherwise see. Uh, And a really good example of that is Laquan McDonald, who was fatally shot 16 times in 2014 by Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke. The world would have never known who he was without a FOIA. So when I think about transparency, I think FOIA is a— an incredibly powerful example of the government being forced to be more transparent. Yes. And to me, it's a perfect example of what I would call one of two major categories of transparency. So if you want to ask the government to do things in an open way, there's kind of two different ways you might do so. One is you can say the government may not take action unless they just do it in the open in the first place. Or the other thing you can do is you can say, well, the government can conduct business as it likes, but then after having done so, they have to let you know what they did if you asked. So like, for example, the Freedom of Information Act uh, guarantees that if people request certain documents or in the Laquan McDonald case, videos from the government, the government has to hand them over. So that's the second type. The first type is, again, where they just cannot act except for in public. And one kind of standard example of that is called the Open Meetings Act. And what the Open Meetings Act says is that official government meetings or gatherings of a certain collection of government officials 
may not take place except for in public and with the public having been notified in advance of when they're going to meet, where they're going to meet, and what they're going to talk about. I'm curious, what what constitutes um, an open meeting? So, for example, I might be thinking that I'm going to a lot of open meetings under this act. So, for example, I could go to a town hall meeting in my neighborhood. Um, I could go to beat meetings. So, uh, so let's jump right into the town hall meeting because that's yeah. a great example. Okay, okay, okay. You go to a town hall meeting. What happens there? You can ask questions. You can get information. Right. People can yell at each other. Yeah, there can yeah. be complicated conversations. The government doesn't get to make decisions at that town hall meeting. Okay. Okay. Right? That's not a meeting where the government is acting. Right. That's a meeting where a person who works for the government is just communicating with folks. Gotcha. Different category. So where's the line? The idea is, are you Decisions. doing a government thing? Are you right. creating okay. a government action? Okay. Or are you just having a conversation? But here's got the interesting it, thing it, that's it, really, it. Okay. I think that's really where the rubber meets the road here. Okay. Let's suppose that the only rule was when you're making the actual real life decision, you've got to be in public. Mm-hmm. What would probably happen then, well, all the people who are, let's say, part of the city council or part of a park board who want to conspire to act in private would have a private meeting mm-hmm. where they work out what they're going to do and then go to the public meeting and just do the vote. Right. Right. So, so that, if, if that was allowed, right, if, if like the city council which is not supposed to raise property taxes without doing it in an open meeting because that's something where the public might want to weigh in. If instead they could just decide in a private meeting they're going to do it and then run to the city council floor and vote yes and then and then adjourn, that wouldn't really fulfill the spirit of the Open Meetings Act, right? I feel like that's something that happens all the time. But here's the interesting thing. <laughs> it's not allowed. It's not allowed. Okay. What the Open Meetings Act says is actually incredibly stringent. Okay. It says that... There's a certain number of members of a, let's say, city council or mm-hmm. park board or whatever else that cannot meet in private, period. Can't meet really? in private at all. I need to go read this act. And it, it, when, you, like, when you're first elected like, to, a, to a government body, you get the, the Open Meetings Act training. And they're like, hey, be super careful about whether you CC a certain co- number of your colleagues on an email, because sometimes an email chain can be a violation of the Open Meetings Act. Mm-hmm. So there's this, on paper, very stringent violation, uh, r- yeah. restriction on, on not just can you take a vote to raise someone's property taxes in private, which you definitely can't, but can you orchestrate it as the same group of people who are going to have to take that vote in a few minutes in private? And the answer to that is no as well. So now let's say you want to engage in a particular act that's going to be controversial. So let's say you want to raise everyone's property taxes, right, right? Right, Well, the first thing you might want to do is do it in private, and the Open Meetings Act says you can't do that. Right. So then you think, all right, fine, we're going to take this controversial vote in public, but we're going to orchestrate it in private. Well, you can't all orchestrate it together in private. So what would be the next best thing? Well, you could divide up in small groups. Like, for example, the Open Meetings Act says uh, the the phrase is a majority of a quorum. So, like, the Chicago City Council has 50 people. I think that means a quorum is 26. A majority of 26 is 14. That means 14 members of the Chicago City Council can't have a private meeting like this. Mm -hmm. But 13 can. Right. And then 13 others can. And then 13 others can. And then 13 others can. As a matter of fact, there's a famous story that when Harold Washington, whose mayor, died in 1987, mm-hmm. the city council had to decide who was the next mayor. Right, right. 
and it was a very politically contentious decision, as right. you might imagine. Yeah. There's a story of them actually meeting as a group that was way too large to be in keeping with the Open Meetings Act, meeting in the house of one of them. And so they had like separate little sub-meetings, one in one room of the house, one in another room of the house. And an alderman would run back and forth from one room to another to curry, you know, to, to be a kind of a courier and send messages. Mm-hmm. So the question you might ask here is, what exactly is being accomplished by the Open Meetings Act? And hey, here's an interesting thing. Who passed the Open Meetings Act? The Illinois legislature. Who exempted themselves from it? The Illinois legislature. Yeah. So, in fact, one of our earlier podcasts talked about all the Democratic senators meeting in private right before a vote. Mm -hmm. And after that podcast came out, a friend of mine who's on a city council was like, dude, you can't do that. That's illegal. You were violating the Open Meetings Act and then admitting it on your podcast. And I had to explain, no, no, no. The legislature exempted themselves from that part of the Open Meetings Act. Wow. And so, on the one happen? hand, it's well, it's obvious they don't want, yeah, they don't right. have to follow the rule. They wrote the right. rule, so they can they can write themselves out of the rule. And so, on the one hand, it's do as sounds, I say, not as I do. Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, so it sounds totally scandalous, right? Yeah. The legislature is allowing themselves this freedom that they claim is a violation of transparency when it happens somewhere else. But then the question you might ask is, are the folks who are having this imposed on them actually then fulfilling the spirit? of this principle as well as the letter, or are they just jumping through extra hoops to avoid a technical violation and still figuring out how to orchestrate the whole that's thing in really, secret? So, like, that's my my thing, and that's the thought that I'm having right now. Are they f- not only f- fulfilling the spirit, but filling, fulfilling the letter itself? But this, th- there's a sense that decisions are already made by the time c- the community is invited to the table. So... I mean, do you have any examples that you can provide for for us uh, of um, a time when that was like really successful? Because, I mean, in my mind, I think it, it happens behind closed doors quite often and people find ways to get through the loopholes. Yeah, well, I, I don't think there's a ton of technical violations that aren't being reported. I think there's okay. a lot more use of loopholes. There's a lot more. Right, right. You know, and I think probably everyone can sympathize that if you've ever had to make a large group decision, yes, of course. having sidebar yeah. conversations, yeah. you know, getting groups of people to coordinate quietly, that's sort of natural. But, but how do you coordinate with still including external voices, like the public? Exactly. That's and what I'm talking about. Exactly. And if the whole structure of the law means that the people in power are spending all their time trying to figure out how to kind of bob and weave and just miss violating the letter of the law, Mm -hmm. then who's in charge of actually, in a real way, making sure the public voice is heard? Right. Who? Who? Is that more of a rhetorical question? It was meant to be rhetorical, but you unrhetoricized it (laughs) expertly. And I think the answer is... Nobody except the public. Right. right? The, yeah. the law is supposed yeah. to be this baseline mm-hmm. tool that gives the public a fighting chance at then demanding yeah. some information. And, you know, there's no, look, I support all these laws. I think it, it works in the sense that you then do have these public meetings, but there's a lot more under the surface. So, like, for example, the Laquan McDonald situation where the video is made available to the public because of FOIA, that's real. That's real transparency. That's the law working exactly how it's supposed to. And you're right. We literally would not have known about it without the Freedom of Information Act. 
But there are also loopholes in FOIA that apply in other times. It's possible for documents that are handed over to be redacted based upon the privacy of an individual, which is a good reason, except if the person doing the redacting is also the person who we're trying to make sure is being transparent, then you start to have potential conflicts of interest. And the question then becomes, how do you write a law that is not invasive of people's privacy, but also isn't so riddled with loopholes that it becomes irrelevant? And sometimes you wind up with this kind of fake or in-name-only transparency that's actually way more egregious. So, for example, I was once, because I'm a legislative nerd, I was once reading a bill that was being worked on in the Oregon legislature, and the bill started by saying, this act being necessary for the immediate preservation of the public peace, health, and safety, an emergency is declared to exist, and this act takes effect on its passage. I was like, whoa, this must be important. They're declaring an emergency. And the bill was about something totally pedestrian and obviously non-emergency. Like what? It was, cr- it was actually literally creating a committee to study a question. Really? Literally. What was the point of all of that extra language there? So that was my question, too. It turns out the Oregon Constitution says that when you pass a bill, it can't go into effect immediately. There's got to be this kind of window before it goes into effect unless it's an emergency. And because of that provision, which is supposed to give something time for the public to study it before it goes into effect, Mm -hmm. because of that, that provision in their constitution, what the Oregon legislators now do is they just call everything an emergency. So what about real emergencies? There are emergencies too. Oh my! It's just that 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 <laughs> transparency provision in the Oregon Constitution has become a hundred percent fake. It's just it's just window dressing because they violate it all the time by pretending that stuff is an emergency regardless of whether it's an emergency. I feel like they're crying wolf because how do you know what when when you don't it's need real to. emergency? They're, they're not they're not even crying wolf. They're just eradicating all the wolves. Oh my god! And I'm boy, this meta. I don't know. I don't. I'm not a I'm not a nursery rhyme metaphor guy. Yeah, that was oof. pretty bad. But yeah, I, but I was I, I was following you. I, I mean, I got it. I mean, I'm with let, you. let's move on. I, <laughs> I don't feel good about this. But there's there's an analogy to this situation in Illinois, which is a little more complicated, but I think really analogous and important. Yeah. So there's a the Illinois Constitution contemplates the question of, hey, how is the public going to have time to weigh in before a bill passes? Right. So it says something really specific. It says, for, before a bill can pass. It's got to be read three separate times on three separate days in each house. So before a bill can pass the House of Representatives, it's got to be read three times on three different days. And then before it can pass the Senate, it's got to be read in the Senate three different times on three and different days. here in Illinois. Here in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that creates this period of five, six days that must pass between when a bill is first introduced and when it actually gets its final vote. Mm-hmm. So the public has, you know, almost a week to weigh in. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. So what's the trick that gets pulled in Springfield again and again and again? They'll take some bill. It might do literally nothing at all. And those bills are called shell bills, like literally nothing. Or it might do something completely irrelevant, like rename something. So a shell bill is just a bill with nothing in it? Yeah. Okay. Literally a shell. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you'll take a bill like that, and you'll have it read a couple times, and then on the third day, you'll pass one house, and then you'll have it read a couple times on a couple days in the next house. So now it's like ready to go. It's been read three times on three different days in one house. It's been read three times on three different days in the other house. It's ready to pass. It's gotten the scrutiny. There's nothing in it. And then at the last minute before they pass it, they drop in an amendment 
that totally changes what it does. But if there's nothing in it, then what are people reading? So the technical thing is when it's read, they just read the title anyways. The, the point of the provision isn't that it's read out loud and there's like an audience listening. Oh, Lord, yeah. The, the, the point is just to kill time, right? The point is to, to create a period of time during which the public can read about the bill yeah. and, and weigh in. And that, that all makes sense. But if the bill doesn't do anything until half hour before it's passed, then this transparency is also just Fake. pretend. Totally and fake. also, if people are just reading the titles of the bill and that is considered read. I don't think that's a problem because right, the, the transparency doesn't come from people sitting in the House gallery listening. Okay. right? It, it comes from the fact that once the bill is introduced, right, right. the text is publicly available. right? So, so, wow. so, so the, the fact they're not reading it out loud, I it's don't care either issue. way. It's the issue that the people issue is are no not it. able to weigh in on the it that makes it the it that's relevant True. is going to get it's going to get the last unveiled at the very last yeah, minute, yeah. and then everyone the the Constitution imagines that to be full transparency because the nothing that it isn't was publicly available for six days. So I want to talk about a type of question that I think we've come near a lot on this podcast, mm -hmm. which is not just is transparency working or not, mm -hmm. but when is it working and for whom is it working and who is winning and who's losing? Right, right. So let me give you an example. When the government spends money, I think most of us feel like we ought to know, right? The government is us. It's our money being spent on behalf of us. We ought to have information about that. Right. And I think some people might be surprised to learn that, by and large, that information is accessible. It's like very accessible. You can go to the state controller's website and get detailed information about most expenditures. You, the, the salary of pretty much any public employee is available online. You know, when the government procures staples, there's a whole paper trail that's generated that's accessible to the public about the bids and the process and the communication and when the invoices are sent and all that stuff. That, that, that is very, very, very transparent, and I think with good reason. But there's an exception, and the exception is super crazy. The exception is that when our pension funds, which you know have billions and billions of dollars in them, so they've, they've got to invest that money. Mm -hmm. They invest some of that money with hedge funds. They invest some of that money with private equity firms. Like, for example, that's how Bruce Rauner, our previous governor, got so wealthy. It was because he ran a private equity company that invested in large part state pension money. Yeah. So when the pension funds invest their money with these uh, Wall Street firms, they're incredibly lax, like crazily lax disclosure requirements in terms of what the fees are. And not only does the public not have almost any visibility into what many of the fees that these pension funds are paying to these Wall Street companies, mm -hmm. but the pension funds themselves don't even know about a lot of them. How is that able to happen? Because here's how in the, in the investment world, you know, if you're having someone invest your money, you give them a giant sack of money. Right. And then they give is, you. Is that what we do? We give yeah, them oh, for the, sure. A giant you you sling it over your shoulder, over, yeah, right? Yeah. And then you walk <laughs> physically <stick>. from <laughs> Springfield, Illinois, to Wall Street. It's like um, here. Correct, here's right. this giant sack of money. <laughs> so you give this giant sack of money to these investment firms, and then yeah. at a later time, they give a bunch of money back, and hopefully, they give more than right, you gave right, them. Right, right. But there's not a an obvious. It's not automatic that you're going to have enumerated what you could have gotten if they hadn't charged you fees the way they did. Right. And 
Some of those fees are required to be disclosed. Some of those fees are disclosed as a matter of course, and some of those fees are just totally secret. For example, and this sounds like it's made up, but I swear it's real. There are private equity firms that take the sack of money. So these are giant, giant investment companies that are investing billions of dollars on behalf of the people of Illinois and the workers and future retirees of Illinois. They take this money. They also, of course, own private jets, because why wouldn't they? Right. They use part of this money to reimburse themselves for the cost of flying themselves around in their own private jets. That doesn't sound fake at all. And then they don't tell us. That sounds uh, about... Right. Yeah. That in, sounds very real. In an environment <laughs> in an environment where every piece of furniture purchased by the state is meticulously enumerated in every cent and posted the, the, on and every, exactly, uh, the exactly. site. But, yeah. but when a private equity firm takes a giant amount of state money and then just uses some of it to pay themselves back for the trouble of flying themselves around in their own private jets, we don't get to know. Where are those loopholes? Th- those are written right into the law because they fall under this kind of business secrets provision, right? So so one thing that you might want the Freedom of Information Act to protect is true trade secrets. Right, right? which I, yeah, yeah. And what the private equity companies have managed to do is they've managed to argue that the kind of grotesque fees that they just take out of our pockets yeah. counts as a trade secret. Yeah. And... They then, and this is where I think power comes into play, Mm -hmm. they then play different states off each other. Mm -hmm. They go to one state and say, hey, we've got a pretty good return for you. You may not like the fees. You may wish you knew more about the fees. You may want to ask us questions about the fees. You know what? Virginia's pension fund wants to invest with us too. If you ask too many questions, we'll go over there. Mm. And so these kind of very wealthy, powerful entities have managed to create a race to the bottom, whereas... Everybody else is dealing with these pretty stringent rules. How do you how do you combat that? Well, this is a this is a specific example that only runs because these guys have created a system so complicated that it takes forever to explain, and so no one knows about it. And so I, for a while, made it a crusade to explain this. I, you know, wrote stuff about it. I talked about it in public. I wrote a bill to solve this problem. I actually passed that bill out of one house, but not the other house. And ultimately, it was a war of attrition because even though it's pretty sensational that you and I and every other Illinois resident are, for all we know, right now paying Wall Street executives for the privilege of flying themselves around the world in their own private jets, even though that itself is a pretty inflammatory thing to say, to explain how that all works is so complex that you lose people halfway through and they just keep on I don't know. getting away with that- it. The way you just explained that didn't sound complex at all. It was pretty simple. We'll see what and the listeners think. I'm serious. <laughs> and actually, you know, it's kind of funny because it really kind of connected to this. There was this documentary that I uh, went to go watch at the Chicago International Film Festival years ago. It was called Stink. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's about trade secrets and um mm. all of the different <clears throat> harmful toxic chemicals that are in cleaning supplies, perfume, soaps, all of that under fragrance, like under fragrance because it's considered 
a trade secret, and essentially they're unregulated. And so you have the same things that, <laughs> the same chemicals that you put on your body that go into the fragrance of a perfume are the same chemicals that are in your, like, toilet bowl cleaner. I actually really enjoy that documentary, and people should definitely pick it up. Mm. But it actually breaks this down in a very simple, comprehensible way. It was just incredible how much is right here before our eyes that's protected by government. It's it's um, it's it's not very complex, and it's in fact not before eyes at all. It's exactly. Yeah, yeah I guess. I guess. It's, I, you it's know what? It's hidden away. It's hidden away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In many ways, I guess you're right. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of things not being before eyes, right? <laughs> like you know, I'm always bringing it back around. Um, so it's clear that the public that were often left in the dark a bit. Um, but folks, but, but are the folks within the legislature even aware of what's happening? So like in this documentary stink when they're interviewing folks, sure, some people didn't want to be interviewed, but then other people were like, what? Um, I guess, I don't really know. Maybe eh, I think that we're protecting people, <laughs> right? Um, does anybody know what's going on? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, I, I'm I'm reminded of this crazy day that, uh, happened when I was in the House. I think it was 2011. There had been a longstanding discussion on the question of what we were going to do about pension debt, right. and there had been a few different proposals flying around. And then kind of at the last minute, another proposal came down uh, because of a maneuver that Speaker Madigan had made. And it was a long bill, and it was in some respects at least somewhat new. And a Southern Illinois state representative by the name of Mike Bost like, lost his mind. And I hope we can play some of this clip. Bill's a carter all the damn time. Come out here in the last second. And I got to try to figure out how to vote for my people. You should be ashamed of yourselves. I'm sick of it. I feel like somebody trying to be released from Egypt. Let my people go. He, start, he starts explaining <laughs> that, you know, how angry he is. And he's holding the bill that just came hot off the presses. And he, he, he throws it up in the air. And at the peak of its arc, the binder clip comes off. And so, you know, the pieces of paper on an individual basis begin fluttering down. And then he, um, this is true, he punches the paper on right, its way down. Middle, just like way down. nails it's it. I mean, it's, a, it's a very, you, you know, it's a, it's a good, um, good right hook. Um, <laughs> and he just starts screaming about how he doesn't know. And I was my sent God, here to vote for my people. They sent me here to vote for him. They sent me here to vote vote for him, to argue for them. But I'm trapped. I think in that specific instance, he had a pretty solid argument that the bill was long and technical and complicated and detailed. And, you know, though the other side would say, hey, we've been talking about this issue for a while, that specific bill had not been out for more than a tiny amount of time. And he was being asked to take a really, really consequential vote and legitimately could say he just did not have the time to learn what he was voting on before it was time to take the vote. So that's an example of a state representative, who, by the way, is now a member of the U.S. Congress, yeah. um, saying, I don't know. I have enough time. I don't know. They didn't give me time. It's not fair. It's not right. I'm just as in the dark as the public, as the public back home. Who got this, these six days. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, you look at the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, mm -hmm. that thing was in the works for literally decades. Mm -hmm. Something really similar actually was the law in Massachusetts for years before it passed on the federal level. There was an endless process of, you know, like 
basically a year of public meetings and committee hearings, and mm-hmm. that thing got talked to death. But then when the final version came out, the opponents who didn't want it to pass and wanted to kind of make it into a political issue, yeah. they were like, oh, this bill is so long. It just came out. We didn't have time to talk about it. How dare you jam this through before we've had time to really discuss it? And I think those two examples are pretty telling because the rhetoric of the people who were upset in both cases was the same. They both said, I didn't have enough time. It's unfair. The process stinks. You didn't give me the tools I need to make a good decision. And in one case, I think it was pretty much true. And in one case, it was pretty much just not true. But the excuse sounded pretty good in the case when it wasn't true. And so now you've got this double layer of, on the one hand, you're right, Glenn. There are definitely times when people on the inside truly don't know enough. Yeah. But then how are we on the outside supposed to know if they're telling the truth when they tell us they don't know enough? Exactly. Okay, so then it kind of takes us back to the conversation we were just having. So then who is actually adding those things to the bills last minute? Like, who's doing that if a member of the legislature are like, I don't don't know what's in this, and these things have been added, and I haven't had time to read it. Like, who's doing that? Well, there's 118 members of the House, and they're definitely not all, like, sitting in a room together workshopping ideas and high-fiving after each sentence gets written, right? Like, someone's got to write it. And in this instance, when it was a big, controversial thing, you know, Speaker Madigan had a ton of control over who wrote what and who saw what when and when it all happened. And, you know, and again, by itself, that doesn't sound so bad because you don't want 118 people literally, you know, sitting in front of a, you know, giant piece of butcher paper on the wall with markers. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but you also don't want a situation where somebody's called upon to vote on a hundred and hundreds and hundreds of pages long technical bill that really matters without genuinely having a chance to figure out what it means. You know, if you look, Mike Madigan is a speaker, John Collerton is a Senate president. They have formally parallel jobs. Yeah. But they act very differently with information. Right. Madigan, you know, if you're a member of the House, you don't get to just meet with Madigan when you want to. You don't have access to him. You don't get clear information from him unless he wants to kind of bestow it upon you generously. Wait a minute. You don't... Wait a minute. <laughs> as as a member of the House, as, as a representative, you do not have access to the House Speaker? Correct. Whenever you... How does Correct. that work? Badly. I mean, it's like teachers being in a school and never being able to access the principal. Not never. It just means the teachers who aren't in favor don't get to access the principal when they have a question. Oh, because, again, okay. it's the strategic withholding of information, not the universal withholding of information, right? If I never tell anybody anything, then everyone's just going to hate me. Gotcha. But if I am very careful about who I let in and how savagely I keep other people out, then a lot of people are going to want to work hard to make sure they're on the inside. You know, whereas by <laughs> contrast, in the Senate, like, oh, man. it's like almost as though— It's John like an Carl- outside to the, to the, to the inside— yeah, well, for sure. There's there's no there's a never-ending series of 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 inside circles, right? You know, but but like in the Senate, it's like almost as though John Collerton is a normal person. Like you can text him on his cell phone, an object that he owns, and or send him an email, or just like go drop in and see him, and then have a conversation. And it's not as though he'll tell you everything that you want to know necessarily. There are times when he is very cagey as well, but you can sort of have regular kind of human interactions and conversations that make it seem as though information is not some kind of weaponized, very scarce commodity.
I want to give one other just really specific example okay. of a time that I felt like, wait, am I in the inside or in the outside? What, what information should I be getting? There was a, a real tragedy that occurred in my legislative district when I was a senator. There was a, a train crash that happened on a bridge. Mm -hmm. The train caused the bridge to collapse on a car with two people in it who were killed instantly. It was a terrible, terrible tragedy. And train safety in general is regulated by a federal entity, so the federal government was involved. Mm -hmm. But then the question comes up of who's in charge of the road? And that road, that particular stretch of road under that bridge that collapsed was either a state road or a county road. Right. If it was a state road, then I as a state legislator might have had an opportunity to at least try to be helpful in some way. And if it was a county road, I would have a much harder time acting directly. Right. Right. The Illinois Department of Transportation would have been involved if it was a state road, whereas the Cook County Department of Transportation would have been involved if it was a county road. So a natural question was, is it a state road or a county road? You have no idea how difficult that was to figure out. What? Are you serious? Yeah. Like that was a multi-day challenge. I mean, well, I guess I would turn it back on you. How would you figure out the answer to that question? I mean, what is on the books in terms of what books? how it's, are there not books for infrastructure of like where funding is going? Right. That's surely, how I would surely it someone's out. got a book like that, right? But I, and I was the state senator for that area. That I didn't have that book. Oh Lord. And I eventually, the way I found out was I wound up on on the phone with my county commissioner, who was just a friend and an ally, and he was physically in the county building, and he was like, this is stupid. I'm just going to find a map. And he was like wandering around the county building, and eventually he found a map on the wall that was you know, highlighted in a particular way, and that gave us the answer. But th this basic piece of information about government, about the state government that I was one of the 59 state senators with a yeah. key responsibility over, it was just not accessible. And I'm not saying that if, if I hadn't gotten it that way, I wouldn't have gotten it some other way. I would have eventually. But here we were in an emergency situation of needing to physically move some physical rubble. And the information was just not readily available. So I think, you know, when, when the, you know, someone in the public is frustrated that government seems opaque and confusing and kind of hard to actually fully understand the interior of, let me just say, you are not alone. So in other words, it doesn't get any better on the inside, is what you're saying. The category of problem does not change. Wow. Right? You learn certain things, lots of them, right? This podcast wouldn't happen if I hadn't learned a whole bunch of stuff during my eight years as a state legislator. Right. But the same types of frustrations still exist. As far as I can tell, never go away. I have this theory that there's like a correlation between transparency or, or lack thereof in this case and civic disengagement of the public. So although... A lot of folks in government also don't seem to know what the heck is going on. Um, I do think that there are folks, as we talked about, the House Speaker, who do know what's going on and work pretty strategically to make sure that only the people that they want 
to know what's going on actually knows what's going on. So with that, I'm going to pose a question. Is the system um, designed to keep folks disengaged so that power can remain in the hands of a small contingent? Of course. And by the way, the two parts of what you said are not in tension with each other. They're the same phenomenon. The reason why a lot of people on the inside have trouble finding information is because they are also (laughs) being kept out of power because right. ultimately knowledge really is power. Right, right, right. that's real. So, so I, I think I think the answer to your question is an unequivocal— That should be the name of this episode. Huh, not a bad idea. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, I think the answer is yes. Um, okay. So with that, do you think that transparency—just thinking about the why of transparency, is transparency, or lack thereof, uh, simply a— byproduct of a broken system, or is the lack of transparency a catalyst for making the system broken? I think it's one of the key ingredients. I think I think it is it is a fundamental right. So, so the question that I think we keep coming back to on this podcast is mm-hmm. basically is why don't people like government? We have democracy, so you vote for people, so you should vote for the ones you like, and then you should get a government you like, and yet everybody hates their government. How could that be? And I think essentially every episode of this podcast is another type of answer to that question. What gets in the way of our democracy giving us a government that we like? And I think a lack of transparency is one of the most important ways. It breaks democracy profoundly because once you don't really have the information you need to cast an informed vote, everything else starts to fall apart. What can the legislature do to make things more transparent for folks? What I— took away from preparing for this episode, actually, was Mm -hmm. that there's two different options. And I think fundamentally, one is like not so great and one is great. The the first option, the kind of naive option, is just pass more and more laws, making more and more things public. Pass a stronger Freedom of Information Act. Tighten up the Open Meetings Act. And I think all that's good. But ultimately, I feel like you're always going to be one step, you know, behind the criminal here, right? There's, there's, as long as all you're doing is making things more complicated on the disclosure side, there will be people one step ahead of you making things more complicated on the inside government side, and you'll just still be further and further behind. I think the other approach is just to make government simpler, period, right? So when I talk about whether it's unclear whether a particular road is in Cook, a Cook County Road or a state of Illinois road, that's a type of question that's just complex. When you talk about all the different layers of government that interact in all these different ways, that's a question that's complex. Another example, I think most people um, who I talk to are frustrated or at least concerned about their property tax bill. Right. Well, it's going to a lot of different places. It's calculated, by the way, in a totally opaque way. You don't even have the right to know how your property tax assessment was calculated. So it's just done in secret and they just tell you what it is. And then the money that you pay, some of it goes to uh, schools, some goes to parks, some goes to libraries, some goes to the water reclamation district, some goes to the city itself, some goes to the county. By the time I'm done listing all of those things, most people are sort of out of capacity to figure out who they're supposed to be mad at, right? The problem was my property tax bill seems unfair. And the answer was, go home and spend six or seven hours trying to figure out whether you're supposed to be mad at the school district or the park district. (laughs) Right. 
That's an unreasonable structure of government, and no matter how much transparency we pile on top of that convoluted structure, it's not going to be natural for most people who are very busy in other ways to figure out how to make their voice heard. So so I'm hearing you, but—and that's cool, and yes, I agree, but then how does the legislature make things less complicated? I think that's a one-step-at-a-time thing. I think they're complicated (laughs) deliberately. They've become more and more complicated and convoluted over the years because it serves these interests. And I think you've got to unwind that one one step at a time. But where would be the first step? You know, it almost doesn't matter what the first step is as long as you pick something that a group of people can agree is important and is currently not transparent and then bring that demand to elected officials in a consistent way. And, th- and the consistency is the important part because it's going to take loud, consistent public input. And we, as the public, have to demand it continuously. And and the problem is this is not sexy. It's It's like... It's honestly like the most boring type of government reform you could possibly imagine, except without this, nothing else can work. Yeah. And with that, we are coming to an end here, y'all. Any final words, Daniel? You taking too long? I'm sorry. I, I'm my my head is full of things that are not words. Um, <laughs> no, listen. I, I guess what I would say is that if you're still listening to the podcast on this episode, <laughs> then you have found parts of it. I'm guessing illuminating. If you found parts of it illuminating, then you know the value of this kind of transparency. Yeah. That's why we got to fight for it. That's why we got to fight for it. I agree. I agree. And if you are snoozing, wake up. No, if you're still you're welcome. We're, we are happy to provide whatever <laughs> service you need, whether it's a sleep aid or an information aid. We are here for you. We are definitely here for the information aids. <laughs> um, but join us next week. Bye bye. Hi there, this is Casey, co-founder of State Matters and producer of Ill-Informed. Thank you so much for listening and taking an interest in learning more about how this wacky stuff works in Springfield and how you can get involved to make the state better. If you support what we do, please consider making a donation at statematters.org. Even $10 makes a difference and also gives that little boost that someone out there is supporting the work we're doing. Again, you can donate at www.statematters.org. And while you're at it, rate and review this podcast to help more folks find us. Thanks.